And turn your Bibles to 1 John. Book of 1 John. We're, uh, we're going to look at the first three verses or so, and I'm, I'm starting out to ask this question, where do you place your faith? It's kind of where I want you to, what I want you to be thinking about, because we're, we're going to try something we've done in the past, uh, where you get to ask questions or make a comment through, uh, through your text, all right? We're going to have a, save a little time at the end if you'd like to... Uh, to um, Put me on the spot, ask a question or, or make a statement pertinent to the, to the lesson that we're, that, we, um, that we're involved in today. There's the number on the, on the screen that's going to be on each of the slides. If something sparks your, your, um, your thinking, you have a question for me or you have a comment that you'd like to, to make, uh, just text it into that. I won't have, we probably, as if it's like in the past, we're not going to have time to go through all of them. Uh, but I promise you, I will I'll try my best. I'll ask for the text so I, I can read them and maybe, um, maybe uh, uh, address your, your questions and maybe your comments in later lessons. You know, last week, one of the questions I asked is, is, where is the Christian that reflects joy? And let me tell you a little story, something that happened. It makes me really proud of you. Um, someone, I won't mention any names right now, but someone in the congregation went and was sharing the lesson, part of the lesson, with some other folks and asked that question, you know, what, what Christian reflects joy? Someone who has visited here several times, not a member here, said this, central. Without any, without any, um, what do you call it? Yeah. Yeah, probing or whatever, just said central, and it, it to me that's just a, a um, it's a joy, <laughs> it is a a compliment that when that question was asked, they thought of you, this congregation as a whole, and uh, and I, I was thinking about that. I wasn't trying to imply that the that people are not joyful. I just wanted to stimulate our thinking last week when I was asking these questions. It, do, does my life make it more personal? Does my life reflect joy? And so, um, you know, sometimes maybe in my position, what's the, I don't know the expression. I, you can't see the forest because of the trees or you can't see the trees because of the forest. I'm not sure which way it goes. But, you know, in dealing a lot of times during the week, I deal with people who are having, um, you know, problems, uh, any, anything from serious problems to things like apathy. Um, I hear a lot of things about uh, the way the church should be, uh, things we could do in the assemblies different, um, the, the, the way the sermon could be or shouldn't be or needs to change or, you know, all these things. And I, I think after a while, and I, and I know elders struggle with this, too, you hear all these somewhat negative things that suddenly you just you, that's how you see life. Nothing's good. And sometimes we just need to step back and allow us to see some of the good things that are going on here. And so I was really encouraged with that. Uh, maybe a better application that I could have shared with you last week was look for someone that you think reflects joy and go to that person and say, when I think of joy, I think of you. Or one of the other things that we talked about. The three, pur- the three purposes of First John that we, we examined last week and put those on the screen. 
are that our joy will be complete, that it will be filled up, that it will be uh, filled to the measure. And so as we read First John, we're going to try and find out what John is sharing with us that completes our joy. We have joy. We've been given joy. But what is it that will complete our joy? Second thing is that we will not sin. And the other one is that we will know or be assured of our salvation. If you want to, uh, if you want to know the verses, uh, 1, 4, I think. 2, 1, I think. And 5.13, I think. All right, that's all from memory. So it's, it's in First John, if you don't know. Just read through it. But I think those are the verses you can go to. And you might have a question concerning that, and you can text that in too. But I want to ask this question. What do you put your faith in? In whom have you put your faith in? What have you, you put your faith? You know, everyone lives by faith. People who are not here today live by faith. Everyone lives by faith. So the question really is, in whom or in what do I place my faith? As a Christian, and I think the vast majority here are Christians or proclaim that you're a Christian. As a Christian, why are you a Christian? I was talking to a, um, an atheist acquaintance of mine. And he said, the only reason you're a Christian is you were born in America. He said, if you'd been born in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you're born in China, you'd be either an atheist or you'd be Buddhist or something like that. And that was that there's some validity there. You know, maybe the reason I was introduced to Christianity is because I was born in America with Christian parents. But the question I need to ask myself now is so that my faith doesn't become just an inherited faith. Why am I a Christian? Why do I believe what I say I believe? And so John, he introduces this very thought in these three verses what, you, what could be called as objective evidence. Evidence that, that things that he personally was involved with. Let's read those together. And I believe I have that on the screen. The first three verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at our, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. From John's viewpoint, this is objective faith. This is something he was involved in. And so with us, we could call this subjective. We're relying on his testimony. Some people believe the purpose of one of the purposes of John's writing is he's battling something called Gnosticism. I think his real purpose is he's trying to show us who we are in Christ and why we're there. And there, but there is a background, and it is introduced here by this word. Don't, don't get thrown off by Gnostics. It's, it's a Greek word meaning no. I know something. And so in modern language is this. I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. This was the Gnostics' way of, of, uh, of um, uh, living their life, their, their philosophy. Uh, it, takes, it took different forms then and through the centuries. It takes different forms to, today. But we still have that same teaching that goes around. I know something. I have inside knowledge. 
One of these forms is called docetic Gnosticism. And it taught this. Jesus was a phantom. He, he did not have a real body. What they saw was a ghost. It was a phantom. It was not really a ghost, but something like a ghost. We have that today. And I think it's one of the strongest uh, uh, attacks against Christianity. And it's this. Jesus was a figment of people's imagination. It's just a made-up story. Uh, people took cultural stories of the day, and they built on these stories. And so now what we have in the Bible isn't truth, but it's just something that developed over a period of several hundred years. And, and, and now we, we, we look at this. It just was cultural stories that came, came about. Another form of Gnostic teaching was that the body is unimportant. The spirit is what counts. And so we want to make sure our spirit's right. But it doesn't matter what you do in the body. It doesn't matter how you live your life. Live it, live it any way you want to. No consequences. In other words, sin as much as you want. It doesn't matter. Have you, have you heard that? I know I sin, but God loves me. He understands. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? Well, I, I, it's just my weakness. God understands. It'll be okay. And that's really a form of Gnosticism. It's saying that what I do in my body really doesn't matter that much. God has saved my soul, my spirit, and that's what matters. And though what I do in my body isn't as of great importance. So God understands. He understands my sin. It's just modern Gnosticism. Uh, the first one. I know something more than history has, that has been reported over the last uh, 2,000 years. This is a big thing in our culture today. Uh, I have inside knowledge that began in the 19th century, 20th century, 21st century, and it's come through, and I know some history that you don't know. Dan Brown, you ever heard, heard of him? Yeah. Not your brother-in-law. No, Dan Brown, the author. Da Vinci Code. Have you ever read that? I read it. You know, no one else? A few people? You know, one of the neat things about that is how we take, if you've read any history, he takes history and takes a false history and makes a story about it. And here is the wild thing about the, the whole thing. He says, okay, uh, Constantine um, in the fourth century, he, uh, he took these stories about Jesus and he suppressed some of them and he took what he wanted and he developed these uh the, the, what we have in the, in the Bible. But, uh, but Jesus actually married Mary Magdalene. He didn't die. He married her and had children. You know, all that. If you look at the very front of his book, it says, This is a work of fiction. But if you get on the Internet, he is quoted as an authority on this false his, history that's going on. People refer to this and say, Look, this is what really happened. Jesus never died. He never died. He got married. He had children in where? Or France or somewhere. I can't remember where it was. It's false history. But people are putting their faith in something. The second form, our body doesn't matter. Sin is a side note. I just can't help myself. My, it's my parents' fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my society's fault. It's just the way I'm made. All the excuses we make when we sin is just a form of I know something that you don't know. These two areas are where people, and sometimes even Christians, place their faith. I asked the question at the beginning, where is your faith? 
Where are you placing your faith? You're putting it in something. You're putting it in someone. And you need to understand, you are putting your faith, you're living by faith. You may say, well, I'm my own thinker. I don't listen to any of this, I'm my own thinker. I just, you know, go by by what I think, what I know. Well, guess where you're putting your faith? In you. You are the highest authority. You have placed your faith in yourself and you say, I know more than anyone else. I am the highest authority. You take after Adam. That's what he did. Adam and Eve, they just said, I know God said this, but I am of a higher authority. I'm going to do this. That's, That's where your faith is. You say, well, I put my faith in science, just the facts. I've talked to people who's, who've told me that. Uh, you're putting your faith in the men and women who've come up with these facts. And if you read history, facts, these, his, these scientific facts, they change over time. And what was at one time, this is an established fact, is no longer established a fact. And it's also true that some scientists, not all, but some scientists aren't objective. And they aren't honest. Uh, you know the, the, the uh, statement, follow the money? A lot of scientific discoveries are where the money is. Change the, change the money, it will go somewhere else. But you're still putting your faith in someone. You're putting your faith in the study and the, and the honesty and the uh, validity of, of a scientist. Let's take a look at John. John has a testimony here. As an obvious relationship, if you read John, the first, uh, the first few verses of John, 1 John, and then go back and read the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. We're not going to do that. But on your own, you can read these and you'll see, boy, there's a definite correction, uh, connection here. You can tell it's written by the same person. You don't have to be an authority in anything to read the first 18 verses of the Gospel and then come over and read this this uh, uh, the letter and say these two, the same person wrote both of these. Um, he starts out by declaring that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. Concerning the word of life. And this is the focus. This is the message of, uh, about Jesus. It is about Jesus. It includes his life. It includes his teachings, it includes his character, it includes what happened to him, his death and his burial and his resurrection. This is the whole Jesus. And so he says, that which was from the beginning, I declare to you, the word of life is all about Jesus. And this is what I'm going to be declaring to you. He says, from the beginning. Now, we quoted over and over in the gospel. Surely you know the first verse of John 1.1. In the beginning, Right? Was the, no one remembers, was the Word, and the Word was with God, word, and word, word was God. Okay, and so on. All right, we went through that. And so we see here, again, he says, in the, uh, from the beginning, and we think, well, he's probably referring, like in John, all the way back from the very beginning of everything. I don't think so. I think he took us in John from his deity of who he was to this beginning of the Christian era. He says, now I'm going to tell you, what happened from his incarnation when he became human? John, the Gospel of John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, and starts telling about him as flesh. And so he, he's applying that in this, uh, this uh, uh, letter here. I want to say book or gospel. It's a letter, this little letter. Um, now, he makes some absolute, concrete Factual claims. Look at these real quickly. He says, and I have them highlighted in uh, yellow here, which we heard. 
He says, I'm going to declare that which was from the beginning, what I heard. And that word heard there means to listen carefully. This isn't like listening to a sermon where you're half asleep, okay? This is listening carefully. Like some of you are listening carefully right now. Some of you are taking notes. You are hearing what I'm saying or you're trying to hear. You're, you're paying attention. And then he says, which we have seen with our eyes. And three times he uses this word seen. And it means to see with understanding. To see with your, you're getting it. You understand it. And it's not trying to figure it out. There's a see that, uh, that, the, uh, that the Greek uses that you're trying to figure it out. This is not that word. This is a word that you have figured it out and you see it and you know what you're seeing here. You have figured this out. And then he says, we have seen it with our eyes. He makes it so clear. This is not a spiritual scene. Some people say, well, what John and them saw, they, they just had spiritual insight. Uh, there was a um, Time Magazine article years and years ago said the myth of the resurrection. And it talked about how this was, that Jesus never was raised from the dead. These people just, you know, spiritually, what they were trying to say in the Gospels, they just spiritually saw him. It was a feeling. It was just this. It was a spiritual scene. It wasn't a true scene. But John says, I saw it with my eyes. And he's including the other apostles here. We, we saw these, him with our eyes. Physically saw. And we came to understand what we saw. We looked at. A whole different word here. It means he gazed at it. He studied this. He discovered what was there. It's serious. It's deliberate. This is not casual at all. All these words he's using here is a serious listening, a physical seeing, a uh, seeing with, with, uh, with understanding, serious and deliberate. And our hands have touched. And this isn't a shaking of the hands. This is describes of a, a blind man who, who touches someone's face to figure out who they are. He says, I touched him. And it made me think when, when Jesus said, give me food. Go, I, I, I'm not a ghost. Give me food. I'll eat it. I wonder who touched him when they gave him the food. Or did they all, you know, in my mind, that's where the story ends. But someone must have walked up to him and, and handed it to him and, and touched him. Is he real? And, and their hands may have touched when they took, took the food. I've touched him, he says. This is not a one-time event. This is not just talking after his resurrection. This is for three and a half years. Since, since the time he first called me, the time that I was standing on the River Jordan and, and John the Baptist, the person I was following, he said, look, there's the Lamb of God. And I started following him. And he turned around and he said to me, what are you looking for? And I just said, well, where are you staying? Gospel of John, chapter 1. And what's John's actions here? Five minutes. Five minutes and we're going to go to your questions. Do we have questions? Do we have comments? Oh, we, got, we have a few. All right. His actions. He testified, it said, verse 2. And this word is used to someone who stands up in court and testify. He says, I, I am swearing that I'm telling the truth. Testifying in court. Standing up under scrutiny. Go ahead. Ask me any question you want to. I'm just testifying what I saw. I'm not making up anything. And I proclaim it to you. This means an announcement that I have been given from a higher authority. This is an announcement or proclamation that a higher authority gave me. Jesus gave me this proclamation. He said for me to give this to you, to proclaim this to you. 
the commission from the risen Jesus to announce this good news. So I asked the question, why should I believe him? You know, people, honest people have seen things and heard things that are incorrect. We, we, we hear it all the time. Someone tells you a ghost story. I saw it. Uh, they saw a UFO. Some of you are like, I saw it. I know. I know it. Saw it with my own eyes. And, uh, and, and some of us say, I don't believe you. <laughs> well, you, are you questioning my honesty? So sometimes people, honest, good people, uh, they're not really lying about it, but there may be mis- we don't We don't know how to explain it, but we say, well, I just don't believe that. And so was John in this situation. Why do I believe John saying such a fantastic thing? Why do I, when you tell me your UFO story, I say, yeah, whatever. And John says, and I say, yeah, I believe that. You know, why? Uh, some have lied about important things. People lie about important things sometimes. Why do I believe him? If I choose to believe, I have to choose to believe something. And as I said, we all choose to believe every person lives by faith. And so I'm making the decision, this is the faith by which I'm living. And I think I have some good reasons. I'm going to give you a few reasons why I believe John's testimony. Uh, these are not all the reasons, okay? But these are some of them. Number one, the men who proclaimed this message gained nothing from it. They were martyred. The word, and we testified, we get our word martyr from that word. It's the word martyr in the Greek. So their testimony, as they testified, and then they died for their testimony, became so prevalent that the word changed meaning, and it meant someone who died for their testimony, died for their faith. They died without wealth. They died without the pleasure of life. If you read their history, their, their life history, what did they gain from it? Why do they keep going? And so one of the things I see when someone dies, and not only one person, but many people die for this, it makes me stand up and listen and say, maybe there's something there. Number two, it makes sense. The more I study the Bible, the more it fits together. I used to not see how Genesis fit with John. I used to not see where Leviticus, Jeremy's talking about Leviticus, how you're plowing through that book. How does that fit? Boy, when you study it, it fits. It begins to make sense, great sense. And the greatest sense it makes is this, what he, what he talks about, eternal life. We proclaim to you the word of life, the life, the eternal life. What do we want more than anything else? Life. Life. The salesman that can say, take two of these pills a day. And you'll lose 30 pounds and live 30 years longer. We want to believe it, don't we? We wish it was that simple. We want life. It makes sense. Number three, the message is surprising. This, this is a surprising message. It's not something you would expect. It's not something that is, that you, that is made up. Uh, unlike other messages, there's nothing that we do to merit it, to earn it. It's a gift from God. All other religions, all of the other philosophies says, you do this and you'll get right with God. Do this thing, you'll get right with God. You know, God says, I'm going to get right with you. I'm going to do the thing to get you right with me. I'm going to make the sacrifice so that you will be right with me. It's surprising that God so loved you that he would die for you. 
No other religion teaches that. So it's surprising. Number four, it stood the test of time. For over 2,000 years, this message has been proclaimed, taught, grown. It's grown throughout the world in spite of persecution. The first few hundred years, people were killed. Millions of people were killed. Political maneuvers to try to destroy it. And even in spite of churches and denominations trying to make changes and weaken it and weaken the church through hypocrisy, it still grows. It stood the test of time. Nothing else, no philosophy, no religion, no political direction compares or offers a greater way of life. You know, you're, it, if I'm selling you a bill of goods here, the, listen to my sales pitch. All right, you give me your sales pitch. I can show you the table I was sitting at with an atheist friend. When I, my last conversation with him, he, he didn't have anything to do with me after this. And I said, all you are offering me is depression and despair. That's, all you're, that's what you're selling me. Despair, depression. Because what you're giving me in your philosophy is nothing. And he says, yes, I am. It's a life. And I said, that's not life. I said, you're going to die. Everything that you say to me, if I punched you in the face, it would make no difference according to your philosophy. Nothing compares. But according to what I believe, it makes all the difference in the world how I treat you. But what you're, what you're trying to sell me is worthless. It's just despair. He got mad at me. <clears throat> I don't think he's, he said hi to me since then, that, but that's about all. Number six. It's available to everyone, no matter their race, intellectual, intellectual ability, their wealth. Every other offer depends on whether you can figure it out, whether you're an insider, whether you have the inside knowledge to it, whether you are in the club and you, you do the right thing to, to get into it. We're called to make decisions. I'm going to save this for later, okay? Whether we know it or not and whether we like it or not, we're making a decision. We're putting our faith in something. And what I'm saying is what John offers us in his gospel and in his letter here is worth it. That's why I believe his testimony. Let's go upstairs and see what we have. See what's come in here for a few minutes. reference to all of us, I think. That's true. A chance at life. Mark 10, 4 makes me think of it like this. We were kidnapped long ago while we were not able to understand much, and we thought all this time that we belonged where we were. It was our norm. Then one day, our true owner, our master, our father, brought a ransom and redeemed us. This reunion, this redemption, makes us realize this is where we really belong. Soft, redeemed, forgiven. 
God. Though I am disabled, I will sing His praise for His love for me. My faith is in Christ because I learn from the Word. Unlike the world and others, He is colorblind, loves unconditionally, judges justly, is no respecter of persons, is gender neutral, and saves completely. Hallelujah. The life appeared, they saw it, him, and through their testimony I have come to see him. This is where my faith rests. What would the church look like if we practiced rest and valued rest more? Would our joy be multiplied? definitely going to touch, uh, we're definitely going to, uh, when we get there, going to talk about that. Um, John, as far as we know, was the only one right there at the cross of the twelve. Uh, there's one passage that seems that Peter was standing a, a little ways away. I don't, we don't know when he came into the picture or when he left, but John was there. And uh, when, he, when he, I think one of the convincing proofs, I think it was devastating when he saw it, uh, when the spear was thrust into Jesus' side, I've always thought he was just he was just poked. But this is a soldier who has been given the charge to make sure these men are dead. They have just gone and broken two men's legs. I can't imagine how terrible that would be. You know, it's hard to break a leg, and they they took some kind of huge club and just you know over and over. You know, don't want to get graphic, but they broke this man's leg. And so they come to Jesus, and they're about to do the same thing. And someone says, oh, he's dead. Well, if you're a soldier and you've been charged with something to make sure he's dead, he takes that sword, and he doesn't just poke him, but he thrusts that thing. And it's a huge, heavy sword. And so when John saw the, the, the blood come out, the blood and water come out, he, he, his world just crashed at that point. There was no hope. It was over. And so when he came back, that's why I think he mentions it there in John. He mentions it here in First John. He mentions it in his Revelation. He talks about that blood. He, he's basically saying, I know he died. I know he died. And I know he was raised. I know he was raised. I touched him on my own hands. This is not a twin. This is not a mistake. This is not someone who swooned in the swoon theory where he just went to sleep and passed out on the cross and he revived I mean, this, I saw that, that spear go into his side. I saw the blood come out. I know. 
I know. And it's, it's about 50 times I've counted so far. 50 times in this book, he either says the word no or strongly implies no, which is about 10 times a chapter. <laughs> we'll have this discussion later on. <laughs> He's looking in the wrong concordance. <laughs> let me. <laughs> All right. Um, let me read some. Unless you, lest you think that we really don't struggle with this faith issue in our world today. Let me read you something from the Decatur Daily on Friday, this past Friday. Uh, it's in their Religious uh, Faith Matters uh, column there, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he's talking about a, a, um, a writer, that he's talking about the editorial in the New York Times, okay? And he says, consider the, that recent Times, New York Times column by Frank Bruni, entitled Bigotry, the Bible, and Lessons from Indiana. He stressed that it's time for traditional faiths, this is what I want you to listen He stressed that it's time for traditional faiths to change their doctrines and that they must be made to do so. That's persecution. All right, here's the philosophy. Your faith needs to be changed to adapt to the culture is what the writer is saying. And it's not enough just to to dialogue about this. You must be made to do this. I don't know what he means by that, but that's persecution in one form or, or another. He goes on to say homosexuality and Christianity don't have to be in conflict with the church in, in, uh, in anywhere. Uh, that many Christians regard them that many Christians regard them as incompatible is understandable. An example not so much of hatred's pull as of tradition sway. You're just being swayed by your traditions. But in the end, uh, the continued view, and he just goes through a list of sins here, he says, it's a choice. You have to make a choice, Christians out there. It, you are prioritizing, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, putting, I'm changing the words around, you are prioritizing scattered passages of ancient test, text all over all that has been learned since. As if time stood still, as if the advances of science and knowledge meant nothing. You're ignorant is what he's saying. Times have changed and you haven't changed with the times. You need to change. And so the uh, person opposing this says it's a relativist worldview. I've talked to you about worldview before. And basically what he means is this. It's relative. You know, what's... Okay in this situation is not okay in this situation. It goes back and forth. And he says, while the editors of the New York Times appear to believe that there is a good religion as well as a bad religion, he said the key is that they attack those who defend absolute transcendent doctrines about moral issues. In other words, if you say, I absolutely believe this is true because God said transcendent, God said it's true, and God said that's wrong, he said they attack that. At the times, truth is not eternal. And I want to tell you, in the world, truth is not eternal. It's constantly evolving, said Hamilton. In particular, the editors believe that sexual morality has changed and that this is a good thing. Their ultimate standard is a radical individualism that trumps all over, over, over all other arguments. In other words, what you think trumps everything else. What God thinks doesn't matter. And then he says, this is really interesting, I won't go into too much more detail, but he says, they often seem to endorse and praise certain absolutes. In other words, the things that they think are right, 
They say this is absolutely right, but the things that they think is wrong is oh you're just you're just um, you're just old fashioned. You don't understand. You haven't moved along with the times. And the and the point is, this is not just the New York Times. This is the way the world is going. They believe that not only do you need to change, but they're going to make sure you change. That's why I'm saying, where do you put your faith? Where are you going to put your faith? Are you putting your faith in something that's rock solid, that when the, when, the, when the sands shift and when the persecution comes, you're going to stand firm? Or are you going to go with the flow and to say, yeah, that's fine. I'll go with the flow. And that's why it's so important to get into this word. I had several people tell me about some things they read, and I've, I'm saving these to share with you later, of what they've been reading in First John. I want to encourage you to read it again. Begin to, to look at those patterns. Um, maybe see life. You know, choose, let's, let's choose that one this week. As you read through First John, where do you see life stated or implied? And what's it saying? Maybe that's a good thing. And, uh, as I said at the beginning, go and tell someone that, you, that expresses joy, that you say, that's a joyful person. Go and tell them that and encourage them in that matter. Uh, I, I believe all our elders are here today, and so I'm going to invite them to come forward and uh, to receive any one of you who...